gospel with people all over the world. Um, I was so excited to win at Old Settlers. I didn't, but I was excited before for the when I assumed I was going to have win the raffle. But what I was even more excited about was how happy you guys were all going to be for me for winning. And I was sorry to let you guys down. I didn't win. Um, a few moments ago, Abby talked about washing the windows and then it raining. I've never been accused of being the best PowerPoint maker, um, but I put the PowerPoint together this week. I thought, that's actually pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty proud of that one. And it didn't save correctly. So all I have is this title slide. Um, I'm going to do the sermon later on today at my house for Carrie with the PowerPoint, and she will vouch that they were pretty good slides. Uh, Acts chapter 13, uh, it's a long section, so we'll be looking at verses 13 to 31 and then 42 to 52 at the end of the passage. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and Motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them the Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from the Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. As they went out, 
The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this day. We want to continue to pray for the Stewart family, Lord, as they are ministering and serving in Kansas City this year. And again, we do pray that they're able to return to Taiwan, that they're able to get into Asia, uh, Lord, in the coming months to continue to do your work, to be your hands and feet in that nation, Lord, and pray for opportunities for them to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. And Lord, we pray for that for all of us, that we can have opportunities, that we can have people in our lives, divine appointments to share the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel message. Lord, we pray for our time as we study today in your word. And Lord, I also want to lift up Janet's mother. Lord, she has colon cancer, we've found out, and want to pray for her, pray for her treatment with that, Lord. And most importantly, for her and for all of us, pray that she would come to faith and know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray for that. We pray for our time as we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a series in the book of Galatians, although we won't actually be in Galatians this week. This week, and Lord willing, next week, we're in a series within this series where we're looking at Galatians in the book of Acts. Acts chronicles the early church. But something else very interesting that we see from Acts is that there are places where we see Paul's introduction to certain regions to which he would later write his letters, which comprise so much of the New Testament. We see it with Galatia in Acts chapters 13 and 14. We see it with Philippi in Acts chapter 16, to name a couple. <clears throat> I mentioned this last week, but Galatia was a province in Rome, part of central modern-day Turkey. If I had PowerPoint, you'd be looking at a map right now. And Paul was traveling to cities in the Galatian region during his first missionary journey. And I have a couple of reasons why I want to look at these passages as a precursor to actually getting into the book of Galatians. First, I think it will be helpful to later sections in Galatians and that some of the things that Paul is addressing to see how he was first introduced to these communities. Secondly, 
There are great passages here which showcase Paul's strategies and experiences as a missionary. And those are things from which we can all learn. Before we get into our passage, I want to briefly note a couple things. There are some details in this passage which could be a little bit confusing. And so this will just take a moment, but hopefully it'll be helpful. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 is referred to as both Paul and Saul. I talked about that last week, but Paul went by two names. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul was a Greco-Roman name. And he's not the only person in this passage to go by two names. At the beginning of the passage, the text mentions that a man named John was with Paul and his associates. Uh, At the beginning of the passage, it says... And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went out from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. You might think that's the Apostle John. It isn't. It's actually the Apostle Mark. We know this because of the end of Acts chapter 12, where it says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Fairly minor details, but I know some of you guys have inquiring minds, and I just wanted to try to preemptively help with any potential confusion. With that, we'll get into our passage this morning. The main point is that Paul has come to Galatia to preach the gospel, and he will face both positive and negative reactions. And with that, we'll look at our passage in three sections. First section, Paul arrives in Galatia. Looking again at verses 13 into verse 14, where we see them arrive in the Galatian province. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went out from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. The text says, Paul and his companions. Earlier in chapter 13, it had been mentioned that Paul had been traveling with Barnabas and other men named Simeon, Lysias, Menaean, later on joined by the Apostle Mark, who's called John. At the beginning of the passage, John Mark leaves the group to go to Jerusalem. And next, the verse talks about the route that they went. A lot of places that start with the letter P, if you're reading along. They leave from Paphos, that's on the island of Cyprus. They sail by boat to Perga, which is in Pamphylia which is in the Galatian province. We're not sure how long they stayed there or what type of ministry they might have engaged in. It gets mentioned almost in passing. But next they would have taken the Roman roads to get to Perga, from Perga to Antioch, which is where they'll camp out in this section. And that's where the book talks about Paul's missionary activities in Galatia, his first missionary activities. Now we're getting more into the meat of the story. The second part of verse 14 says, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So Paul had been Jewish, and he converted to Christianity. In the book of Acts, we see a tactic Paul often employed where he would begin in a new city at the synagogue. Because Paul was ethnically and culturally Jewish, He understood Jewish society and customs. Verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, 
If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So he's at the synagogue service. They're doing their scripture readings. And the rabbi allows Paul to have the floor. And this would have often been practiced in Jewish synagogues where if a traveling, especially a respected rabbi or teacher was in attendance, that they would be able to give a message. A couple months ago when Katie had her graduation, Steve's father was with us, pastors in Virginia. And it would have been like if I had had him come up and give the sermon. I'm sure it would have been good. We see Jesus do this multiple times during his ministry. Matthew 4, Luke 4, other times during his ministry where this is his opportunity where he teaches in synagogues. And Paul does the same thing here. That brings us to our second section and the longest of the passage Paul preaches in Galatia. Paul will utilize the opportunity to talk about the Old Testament and how it points to the son of David who would be the savior of Israel. But first, he talks about the Exodus in verses 17 through 20. And four verses, Paul covers 450 years of Israelite history, given a broad thumbnail sketch of their forefathers. I'll read from the passage. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Paul stresses that the Israelites had been chosen by God and that it was the Lord himself who had miraculously brought them out of Egypt and led them through their time in the wilderness in pursuit of the promised land. The audience knows exactly what Paul is talking about. It would be like if I were to stand up and talk about America's founding fathers and how they debated and had the Continental Congress and in 1776 signed the Declaration of Independence. You would know the story that I was telling. Next, Paul talks about how Israel had a monarchy established. I preached about that this summer. The first king of Israel was Saul, and that ends up going poorly as Saul was not a godly king. But his reign paved the way for one who would be. Starting in verse 22, Paul talks about David. And this matters because this is where Paul will change his tone and transition into talking about the gospel. Again, for the audience, they're right with him so far. He's preaching to the choir. Verse 22. And when he removed him, that's referring to Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So Paul arrives at David, the man after God's heart. And in our passage, Paul says to this synagogue in Galatia in verse 23, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now there's a prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 14, about a future offspring from the line of David who would establish an eternal kingdom. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, referring to death, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." 
Paul is telling this Jewish audience that Jesus is the promised son of David. Continuing in our passage, Paul speaks personally to the audience. We'll pick up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He calls them brothers. He calls them sons of the family of Abraham. He is pointing to the shared heritage that Jews have with Christians through Abraham. For both Jews and Christians, Abraham is the patriarch. He is the one through whom God made his promises. Covenant promises of land and offspring and blessing. But through Christ, we see the greatest fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Because he is the one who brings eternal blessings. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. And Jesus is the one who brings people into the true promised land. A new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Abraham was the father of Israel. The father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, whose line led to David, and ultimately to Christ. Abraham matters for all of those reasons, but he also matters because of his faith. In Genesis, when God made his promises, Abraham believed, and that belief, that faith, that trust in God was counted to Abraham as righteousness. In the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and in other writings, the faith of Abraham will be pointed to as an example for Christians, as the basis for our justification before God. It is a matter of trusting in Jesus, believing in his gospel, knowing that he is the Lord and Savior, and that by faith, God justifies us. By faith, God declares us righteous. In our passage, we have Abraham, revered among the Jewish people. And Paul is saying that as the people of Abraham... To us has been sent the message of this salvation. We see something important in this passage. I can't stress this enough, but Paul is speaking to the Galatians on terms that they'll understand. They might not know who Jesus is or why he matters. So Paul starts talking to them about what he knows that they'll know and showing how that points to Jesus. I can't help but wonder if this disconnect has caused part of the challenge with evangelism in our society today. That we assume people know more than they actually do about Jesus. Even for a person who goes to church, they might not know the gospel. Not all churches preach the gospel. Lord willing, I'll have more on that subject next week. I was at a presentation this past week from a gentleman who works with LifeWise Christian Academy. Perhaps some of you guys have heard about that. LifeWise provides biblical teaching to kids in public schools during the school day. And the man from LifeWise gave an example of a school where LifeWise had started teaching students the Bible. And he said, at the beginning of the class for these kids, public school kids, not a single kid in the class knew that Mary and Joseph were the earthly parents of Jesus. I've mentioned before, but surveys have been done. More Americans can list more ingredients on a McDonald's Big Mac than can list commandments 
in the Ten Commandments. I read a survey this year where respondents were asked how often they read the Bible. Just 11% said they read the Bible every day. Half said that they read their Bibles twice a year or less. We can't assume people know the Bible, and we certainly can't assume that people know the gospel. And that's part of why personal evangelism is so important. Sharing the gospel with people. Sharing Jesus with people. And it's gotten worse for younger generations. And it becomes a vicious cycle. Because the previous generations did not do as good of a job teaching their kids the Bible. And so they don't know the Bible. And you can't teach what you don't know. And so the problem gets worse. I think about my life. I didn't grow up going to church. I knew basically nothing about the Bible, and I certainly didn't know the gospel. I had cousins who were Catholic. They had a crucifix in their house. I saw the image of this guy. I'm not sure if I even could have told you it was Jesus. I didn't know who he was or why he mattered. Why did this guy who, as far as I could tell, looked like a hippie, matter so much? In high school, I took an elective class where we spent a quarter of the year studying world religions. The idea of God made total sense to me. But what didn't make sense to me was why you needed Jesus if there was God. And if someone had just said to me, you need to believe in Jesus or you're a sinner and you need Jesus to save you. I don't know if I even would have understood what that meant. There is one gospel. But there's more than one way to share the gospel. And the best way to share the gospel is in the way that makes sense with the person or people with whom you're sharing. Paul, to a Jewish audience, pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures in Acts 13. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking in Athens to a totally different group of people. And he has a totally different approach to sharing the gospel. There, instead of talking to Jewish people, he's talking to Greeks who believed in a pantheon of gods. Paul doesn't lay into them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't say, you're wrong, I'm right. He explains to them. Acts 17, verses 22 to 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He actually commends the people for being very religious, very faithful. He makes light of the fact that the people were so religious and believed in so many gods that they even had an altar to an unknown God, In case they missed one. I don't have time to unpack that entire section. But Paul will talk to this audience of the transcendence of the Lord God. How God is the creator of all things. And Paul will point to the Lord as the God who judges. And the Savior he has sent who has risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 17 verses 32 to 34. We see the response that Paul gets for this message. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him 
and believed. So once again, we see Paul beginning with where his audience is and then skillfully leading the conversation to the resurrection of Jesus and to the gospel. And that's what he does in our section in Acts chapter 13. We'll go back to that section, picking back up in verse 27. And Paul is talking about those who rejected Jesus. As I've said several times, Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience. And it's noteworthy that Jesus ministered in Israel to Jewish people, and that many of those people to whom he ministered rejected him, rejected his ministry. I'll read verses 27 to 31. It reads almost like an early Christian creed as Paul hits on the key points of the gospel after he's connected Jesus to the Old Testament. Starting in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul talks in verses 27 and 29 about Jesus fulfilling what had been written by the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus did not come from nowhere for no reason. Various prophets and scriptures had pointed to him for centuries. And the irony is that he ministered in Israel among Israelites. And it was people from that community who hated Jesus, who plotted against him and who advocated to the Romans to have him crucified. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And in that Those people also fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament as being instruments of evil who would oppose God's anointed Messiah instead of believing in the one to whom the scriptures pointed. The text says they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. The sinlessness of Jesus is an essential aspect of the gospel. That we have a perfect savior. We are sinful, but because Jesus is sinless and because he died for us, when we believe in Jesus, that righteousness is given to us as if it were our own righteousness. It's a righteousness that we cannot earn and that we cannot have apart from Christ. And that message is just as true for us today. If you've never believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that message is for you and it's for all of us. That if you've tried to rely on yourself, if you've tried to rely on your own goodness, if you've put your hope in something aside from the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life and died on the cross, then you have no advocate before God. Jesus was prophesied. Jesus was without sin. Jesus was crucified. And Jesus rose from the dead. As Paul says in the passage in verse 31. And it's because Jesus died and rose that all who believe in him can have the assurance that though we die, yet shall we live because of Christ. A few moments ago, I used myself as an example. 
As a teenager, I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't understand that Jesus is the Lord and that he died for my sins. And through that death, brought reconciliation with God. It's not something I could do on my own. It's not something that you can do on your own. No one can make themselves right with God. But the good news is that Jesus does. Jesus saves. We come to our third scene. Paul continues speaking in verses 33 to 41, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move to the end of the passage where we see the response to Paul's preaching of the gospel. Third section, Galatians respond to the gospel, if you're taking notes. Verses 42 and 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they preached the gospel, and you have some people who want them to return to the synagogue the following week and tell them more about Jesus. Really, Paul's just scratched the surface. Verses 44 and 45, it's the next week, and we see an even larger group has returned to hear Paul's message. And we also start to see opposition from the crowd, beginning in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. It's interesting that it notes that there were people contradicting what Paul was saying. Especially when you consider the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, which is written as an argument against those who had rejected the gospel and who were still trying to impose the law of the Old Testament onto new converts to Christianity. There's a lot more I could say about this passage, but I'm going to take us to the end of the section where we see the response to the gospel message that Paul has preached, beginning in verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Once again, we see that There were some in this Galatian community who were drawn to the message of the gospel. And there were others who were not. Verse 50 talks of some prominent people of social standing who started fomenting opposition against Paul and Barnabas. And so they take that as their cue to leave Antioch. But their travels and ministering in other parts of Galatia will continue into chapter 14. And once again, Lord willing, that's where we'll be next week. But from this passage, we see both receptiveness and opposition to the gospel message. And that should be an encouragement. Jesus calls all of his followers to make disciples, to follow the Great Commission, to share the good news of the gospel. To those with whom we share the gospel, there will be some who want nothing to do with it. But there will also be those who are drawn to the message. Earlier in our time this morning, I talked about how we can't assume people know the gospel. And that has always been true. There has always been the need for personal evangelism. 
But our society used to have so much more of a church culture where it was easier to assume that a person was at least familiar with the gospel. That there was at least some common ground. That people were churched. I think that's at least part of the reason why personal evangelism for so many is such a struggle. Because for such a long time, people didn't think it was necessary. It's not that churches would overtly say evangelism was unnecessary. But when one perceives our society as already largely being Christian, then the need for personal evangelism seems less urgent. Sure, it was needed in other countries where they didn't have the gospel or they had smaller Christian populations. Missions were important. But did we truly look at our own household, our own workplace, our own community as our own mission field? Undoubtedly, some did. I'm not saying no one shared the gospel. But what I'm saying is that America had become so saturated in Christendom that we lost a culture of evangelization. Perhaps we never even had it. Our society is becoming less religious. And Bible-believing churches are now dealing with the fallout of a society where evangelism was not emphasized in the past and where evangelism skills were not taught. And again, I'm speaking in broad generalities. Again, it's not that no one practiced evangelism. And some churches did a better job than other churches with outreach. But overall, evangelistic efforts lagged. Over the last 30 years, as we've seen declines in the church in America, we've also seen this greater, what I'll call, industry of Christianity. We have entire TV networks dedicated to televangelists. We have an explosion in Christian book publishing. Christian music, Christian movies, Christian conferences, Christian celebrities, the megachurch movement. The emphasis with so many of these things was often on being practical. Tips on raising good kids. Tips on dating and finding a good spouse. Tips on marriage and having a good marriage. Tips on finances and having good finances. Many churches became a place to hear a self-help message rather than the message of Jesus who calls us to die to self. Again, for the third time. It's not that all churches became this way, but so many of the popular and influential churches became this way. Sermons that lost their theological weight, music that was emotive and theologically shallow, youth groups that were more concerned with entertaining kids rather than teaching them about Jesus. In the Bible... Jesus calls us to count the cost of following him. Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him. But so many churches replace that with a prosperity Jesus who really asked little of us. It took more of an inward focus rather than living as light in the world as disciples of Christ and heralds of the gospel message. The practical Christianity industry did not necessarily focus on preaching the gospel, let alone sharing the gospel with others. And so we have a command of Jesus, and many well-meaning Christians aren't equipped and don't know how to follow it. Why do people share the gospel? Two reasons come to mind. 
And they're not mutually exclusive. One is a sense of obligation. That's a fine reason to share the gospel. It is, after all, a command of Christ. But there's a second reason that's also important. And that is because you have such a love for God and a knowledge of the grace of Christ and see such beauty in the gospel of his grace that you want to share it with others. Obligation, you can force yourself to do. And that can work. I have no doubt there are people, lots of people all over the world, maybe people in this room, who were led to Christ by people who shared the gospel with them, who might not have felt like it, who might not have wanted to, but they did it out of faithfulness. And we should praise the Lord for that. You can force yourself to do something out of obligation. You cannot force yourself to have a genuine love for the gospel and a passion for making Jesus known. That can only come as a result of a love for Jesus and a life that is centered around Jesus. Towards the end of the book of Galatians, Paul will talk of walking in step with the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul talks about the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in a believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We don't create those in ourselves. It's a supernatural work of God through the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul talks about the transformative effect of looking to God. Where he says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Looking to God. Knowing the truth of God, serving God, praying to God, having a constant God-centered mind and heart and soul and life is transformational. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks of the person who is blessed by living as a kingdom person in this world. I won't read the entire section, but among those, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And on and on. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You might have thought that my application today would be go out and evangelize people. And sure, that's the ultimate place where I'd like this passage to lead us. But my ultimate point with this passage is to live a life Where you can be the kind of person who loves Jesus so much that you want to share him with others. If you look at evangelism as merely an obligation, then maybe you'll talk to people about Jesus sometimes. But to evangelize out of love must come from living for Jesus as a way of life. Is your faith something that you just sort of attach onto your life, but you're really kind of just doing what you want to do? Or is your faith in Christ and the gospel and the goodness and truth of who Jesus is the thing that drives you? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, may we be a church of people who are transformed, Lord. The gospel is not some life tips. It's not a philosophy. That it is the power of God unto salvation, Lord. That the gospel is transformative. It is a supernatural work of the Lord and people. And Lord, may we be a church of people who are transformed 
and who live as the light of Christ in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.